Our first scripture reading this morning is from Revelation 5, 1 through 10. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Our second passage is from Psalm 96, verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, and bring an offering and come into his courts. Thanks be to God. The genesis of the one-word theme of our stewardship series, Worthy, was me driving in my car listening to music. And a particular song came onto my car stereo. And by the time I had listened to that complete song... From start to finish, there were tears streaming down my cheeks. There was something powerful about what was going on in that song. That song is titled, Is He Worthy? And it is fast on its way to becoming a modern Christian classic. Some of you might have heard it. It has gotten some play on Christian radio. It's written by a singer-songwriter named Andrew Peterson, and it has been more popularly uh, performed and distributed uh, by Chris Tomlin, who is a uh, kind of one of the more well-known worship song performers of our time. The chorus ends with this phrase, is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? That's what the soloist sings. And then a choir comes in behind that and says, he is. 
It's like a statement of faith, similar to the statement of faith of the Apostles' Creed that we just said as a congregation. It allows the whole chorus of all the faithful to give an answer together to that question. Is he worthy? He is. We're going to get a chance to sing that more than once, I think, during this month of November. Psalm 96 is one of the great songs of worship. We read the full, we read the full psalm, rather, at the beginning of our service today in a call to worship. And here are some of the highlights. Sing a new song to the Lord, all the earth. Proclaim the Lord's salvation from day to day. Declare, declare the Lord's glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among the people. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. Psalm 96 invites us into elevated language. Elevated language. Language that expands our vocabulary. We might need a dictionary when we follow along in Psalm 96, similar to the song we sang, Indescribable. There are words that we don't use every day. They are super words. They're words that raise our sense of what is. Words like amazing and powerful and glorious. Splendor, majesty, strength. These words our God is worthy of. That's one of the things or activities that we're invited into in worship. That is a little bit different than just say worshiping God or having a reverence for God in the midst of daily life. Every once in a while, and I believe God has kind of ordained that we would do that at least once per week when we gather together on the Lord's day. We allow ourselves to use elevated language to describe who God is in our eyes. Worthy, having worth, value, deserving. God's worthiness is at the very heart of worship. In fact, the word worship derives from the old English word worship. That's how we get the word worship. It is about acknowledging God's great worth. He is worthy. And Psalm 96 features a verse that connects worship and stewardship. It's verse 8. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The New Living Translation translates that phrase, do his name, or the glory do his name, as the glory he deserves. That's what it means to, that, that there is glory due his name. God is due to hear these words from those who are worshiping God. And then it goes further to say, bring an offering. If you believe that God is worthy of glory, Bring something with you to demonstrate that. Come into his courts. 
The word ascribe is not a word we use on a regular basis. It could, some synonyms for ascribe would be attribute, attribute to the Lord, glory. Recognize that, that glory is one of the attributes of the Lord. It can also, to ascribe something to someone or something means to credit that to them. The word credit kind of brings it a little bit more into the monetary side of things, which, by the way, in worship, as we're going to explore, is a part of worship from the very beginning. There is that monetary or the valuing, what is valuable to us, and bringing something of value is very much a part of the economy of worship. But to ascribe glory to God, it really requires two things. One is to acknowledge to the Lord, that the Lord indeed is glorious, that the Lord reigns, as Psalm 96 says. You know, let us say, the Lord reigns. Let's say that to the whole world, where the world where so many people think they reign, right? They're in charge of their lives in the world. There are so many leaders uh, in the world who, who believe that they have the ultimate power, and yet we are those who have a chorus of saying, our God reigns. But more than it just acknowledging it, we have to offer the word. We have to think the word. We have to pray the word. We have to say the word. We have to demonstrate the word. Offer words of praise that corresponds to who God truly is. God's majesty. And while worship always starts with offering words acknowledging God's worthiness through praise, it naturally extends into our stewardship. Bring an offering and come into his courts. His courts. By the way, this isn't a court like a sports court. Although I, I kind of wish it sort of had a dimension like that. Wouldn't that be cool that like God has a basketball court? For those of us who like hoop, we, we love that idea, right? That's right. This is more of a royal court that's being talked about here. And, and it's something really important to recognize. You already know this a bit about Christian worship. Uh, but uh, this maybe is going to blow some of your minds a little bit. That in the, the Hebrew understanding, the ancient Hebrew understanding, that when they talked about worshiping God in a tabernacle first and then the temple that that was not only a place of worship. It was also the throne or the royal palace of the divine ruler. Right? We've just said, say, the Lord reigns. What does that mean? It means that God is the all-powerful. And yes, there is a dimension of God being king. And so, and so when we come to worship, it's not just coming into a sanctuary to do religious things. It's also coming into God's royal presence, come into God's courts, and bring an offering with you, which might remind you of stories in which you have heard that people, subjects of a king, would bring tribute, or even those who were conquered by a king and their armies would bring tribute to the king to acknowledge their power and authority. And yes, 
In the Hebrew understanding of worship, that's what we're doing when we bring an offering to the Lord. Yes, it's an offering of our hearts that is religious worship, but it's also an acknowledgement of God's greatness and God's power and God's authority in our lives. In the Old Testament, this offering that the people of God were invited to bring was, was an offering of their produce if they were a farmer or the offering of some of their livestock if they raised animals. More generally in the Old Testament, when people were considering, well, what does that mean? How much do I give practically? The teaching in the Old Testament in, in the Pentateuch is to give a tithe of those things. A tithe, which means a tenth, 10%. So already, even in that ancient context, it's about a percentage giving. One of the great things about percentage giving is that it's, it's equal sacrifice. If you have a dollar, 10% of that is a dime. It's, but giving a dime when you have a dollar is the same as giving $1,000 if you have $10,000. It's the same gift. And that's important for us. And that's, that's a part of giving in the church. When we talk about tithing or pledging and encouraging people to give to the Lord first, that also is a, is a, is a teaching, uh, giving the first fruits of what God has blessed us with. Um, but helping people along into that, that, that uh, pattern, that ancient pattern of percentage giving that represents equal sacrifice among God's people. And we bring that today, not to the tabernacle or to the temple in Jerusalem, but we bring it to the local outpost of God's courts of praise. And that is in every sanctuary where people gather for worship, whether that be in a home, whether that be in a place underground during a time of war and oppression, whether that be in a grand cathedral, or whether that be just in your average church along a suburban road. But looks can be deceiving because every opportunity we have at that outpost, we are invited through an open door to glimpse God's true nature and God's real glory. There's, there are few words as immediately descriptive as blasé. Say that with me, blasé. I mean blasé, right? Right? You can't say blasé in an excited, interested manner because that's what blasé basically says. You're not interested and you're not excited. Uh, you're just saying whatever, Right? Muted enthusiasm at best. Blasé. Now, sometimes something that might get uh, kind of uh, confused or, or interpreted as blasé could be decorum, right? We're trying to, we're trying to be, you know, not wild and, and crazy. We're trying to, to be, have manners and, and, and behave appropriately to the setting. But more often, I think, something that, an attitude that is blasé 
is usually evidence of self-importance. Self-importance. Like if you're blasé, if you're at a party and you're blasé about the party, you're basically saying, I'm too good for this party. Like, like if this party was up to my standards, it would be much better. Um, now, you never, most blasé people hardly ever pause to think that you might be part of the problem that's bringing the party down. <laughs> but what you're saying is, I'm unimpressed. Do we ever think that when we come to worship? Are we looking for something exciting and when we don't see it, we lean back and we kind of resolve ourselves to say, nah, you got to do better than this. You got to do better than this to impress me. Judges on televised competition shows are really good at this, especially during the audition phase. You've seen it. They're there. Some of them, their arms are folded. Others of them, not folded, but their arms are folded. You know what I mean? And the person walking in on the stage to perform or audition, it's just like the vibe there is you got to do something special to impress us. And we've seen it over and over again. In fact, the reason why these shows sometimes are so popular is, is in the judge's response. Some of them are known by name. I'm not even going to mention their name, but you know who I'm talking about, right? They become cultural icons because they're saying, I'm unimpressed. Now, one uh, that I remember, uh, his famous quip was, that was all right. And I love that, right? All right. That, that's something that a lot of different generations can, can, uh, can identify with. Yeah, that was all right. That was all right. But I'm not jumping up and down about it. But then there are moments in those shows when they witness something that completely knocks them off their game. They immediately jettison, jettison their blasé demeanor and sometimes spontaneously stand up and to start cheering. And they struggle to find words, sometimes through tears, how to describe what it is that they have just witnessed. Friends, this is what is happening when we gather for worship. That is if we really enter into what is happening and truly give ourselves to acknowledging God's worthiness of our praise through our singing, through our praying, and through our giving. Annie Dillard, uh, one of the, the late 20th century's uh, kind of American, in terms of American uh, novelists and short story writers, one of the, the most uh, uh, well spoken of. In her uh, collection of short stories called Teaching a Stone to Talk, she gives this illustration, which I've used in a sermon before. I've heard it used in sermons before. Uh, it's a fantastic illustration. It actually came from her in the Puget Sound area, being at a worship service and just wondering. Here's what she wondered. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? She's talking about worship. 
Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Annie Dillard, a a believer who, who in a different voice reminds us of what Psalm 96 reminds us of, that our God is worthy, great is the Lord, and worthy of praise. Well, the song, Is He Worthy, that that was the inspiration for this sermon series, is actually based on a text in the book of Revelation that we read today from Revelation chapter 5. It's a scene of the heavenly throne room. And it's one of the most significant scriptures on worship. In the entire Bible. It comes after the, the revelation or the apocalypse, the vision given to John on the island of Patmos, after it is introduced that he is the one seeing these and, and writing this down, and then there's a message to seven churches. The island of Patmos is actually in Greece today, but it's right off the coast of what is modern-day Turkey, and On the mainland of what is modern-day Turkey, there are seven cities. You can visit them today. And seven of those, those seven cities had seven churches in them, one for each city. And there's a special message to each one. It reads like just a regular message that, say, you'd read in, say, Philippians. It's a letter from a leader of the church to that church. But then something amazing happens in chapter 4 and 5 is John starts to relay basically the core vision of Revelation. And dare I say, using elevated language. Okay, so it's always a challenge to preach from Revelation in a one-time shot. Because a lot of y'all are kind of saying, wait, Revelation, and then there's sort of a noise that happens in the back of your brain saying, I'm supposed to not understand this, right? This is too much for me. Revelation? Okay, so without denying that that Revelation is worthy of deep, in-depth study over a long period of time, and then you still need to study it more, uh, it's it's full of, of... of, of beauty and grandeur and, and, uh, and really shocking things. But all of that imagery that seems so strange and foreign to us is there for a purpose, and it's the same purpose that Psalm 96 uses with, their, with its elevated language. It's meant to raise our sense of the grandeur and the scope and the scale of what is happening. In fact, some biblical scholars contend that Revelation, which, by the way, was read by Christians at the end of the first century. It, wasn't just, it didn't just go on ice and then, and then uh, delivered by angels in the early 1970s to Hal Lindsey so he could write a book called The Late Great Planet Earth. 
okay? Now, I'm not, I'm not going to contend against anything that he's saying there, although later we can talk about that. But, but the, cool, the thing is, from a biblical study standpoint, is hey, Christians have been reading Revelation for 2,000 years and have been getting something from it. And it was true when those churches were young. These biblical scholars contend that Revelation was likely originally read by churches in the context of worship in order to elevate their experience of the Lord's Supper. So there's a question that I can ask you that is a doorway to understanding a little bit more about Revelation. And that is, as we gather at the table of our Lord here, what do you think is happening in heaven? What do you think is happening in heaven right now? Is there a heavenly blasé response to what's going on? Or might it be completely in the opposite direction? Might it be that we just get a small taste around this table of something that would just, if we saw it, we would drop right to our knees? If we could do that. And that's what's happening in chapters 4 and 5. We are, we are basically, the, the community table opens up to be the place, the heavenly throne room that exists not necessarily in the dimension of this world, but it exists right now. And in chapter 4, we read a description of the throne and who is on the throne. A description of the Almighty God, which is not a description of kind of a human person, because in that, the, 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 uh, the religious context of the first century, there were plenty of statues of human figures that were understood or believed to be divine. No, the description of God in, in the fourth chapter is using, using like imagery of light and like different, the, the impact of light on different you know, like uh, precious gems. Just to raise or elevate our sights that God is beyond. If you say like that Caesar or the former Caesar, there's a statue of him right there and he is a God and you need to worship him. Revelation elevates you Way beyond that. And then chapter 5, there's the entrance of another character, the Lamb. Enter the Lamb. If you've been paying attention in your Bible, see, this is elementary, right? You know who the Lamb is, right? Going back to that Old Testament sacrifice People who would raise sheep, they would bring a lamb to sacrifice. That was a sin offering to God's people in that era. But Jesus was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And in those Old Testament words, Jesus' sacrifice, he, he was spoken as the lamb who was slain. And here, John sees a lamb looking as if he was slain. And in this setting, in this great throne room, we meet angels and elders, presbyters, who worship with us in a different dimension as if they are saving us a seat. 
It's real time. Yes, it's in the future. But you know the great thing about eternity? Is if you stepped into eternity right now, you know what I'm going to say. It's all time once you're there, right? Because that's eternity. It's a mind bender. But it's meant to be that way. So that thing that's happening in eternity is happening in real time right now on the other side of this communion table. Now, there's not a lot of sitting going on in this place. There's a throne. And there's a scroll. And this scroll is, is the, you know, the, in that day, things that were important were written on scrolls of parchment. And so any kind of announcement, proclamation, would be written on a scroll. Scrolls are really important. And, and uh, important things are written on scrolls. Legal things are written on scrolls. And they are sealed by those in authority. And not anyone has the authority to open that scroll. And so the idea of a sealed scroll is, is that it's not doing us any good if we don't know what's in it. But, only, but someone who has authority has to open the scroll. And so there's a, the entrance of a scroll that's sealed. This scroll basically contains the plan of God to redeem the world and all of creation. And an angel asks a question, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And there's dejection and suffering and real tears because no one is found to open it. And they wept John wept and wept. But then a reassuring elder came alongside him and said, it's okay. The lamb, the lamb can open the scroll. He can do it. And then you see this action where the lamb is on the throne. He takes the scroll from the one on the throne. And when he had taken it, He's able to open it, and all those who are present in God's presence fall down before the Lamb, and they sing a new song, like the new song from Psalm 96. You are worthy, the first line of that song. This is a song to Jesus, because you died on the cross, basically, and established the kingdom of God. Jesus is worthy. Jesus, the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Worthy in Greek is axios. And it can also mean deserving. By saying to the Lamb, you are worthy. It's you are deserving of this praise. We take our place with the heavenly choir. The living creatures, the elders, and the angels. And sing this new song. One of the lyrics in this new song is, is saying how great God is. And one of, the, one of the, the features here is financial. Here's money again. You have bought for God people of every tribe, language, people, and nation. What this means, the word, Greek word here for bought is agorazo. 
related to agora, which is market. We talked about that a lot in our Philippians class. So what it means is basically just like you go to the market and buy something, Jesus did that. But what he bought was the ransom he paid to free us from slavery to sin at the cost of his own life. Purchased, ransomed, redeemed into freedom. And what's happening here is is the people gathering around the communion table in that first century, and even us, our eyes are being elevated to the scale and the scope, every tribe, language, people, and nation. You know, when people first read this publicly, the estimates are at the end of the first century, in the city of Ephesus, there were 200,000 people in that city and a church of probably 200. Now, they'd heard missionaries coming in and saying, hey, we just planted a church in Philippi. And there's Christians gathering together in Rome. And they're just recognizing something's happening, but it's not in these huge numbers. And to hear that what Jesus did was for every people of every tribe, language, people, and nation, that magnitude was against all appearances. Their hopes, their understanding of God's reality, God's grandeur, God's worthiness was being elevated. You know, this whole scene in the throne room where this worship is happening is evocative of something that's actually quite common in our culture. We live in an era of fascination with fantasy especially when it comes to the stories that our culture gravitates toward in producing literature and entertainment. From fairy tales to science fiction and space, what we read and watch invites us oftentimes into another world where we're asked to suspend our disbelief for a moment and consider the connections that that world has to our world. Some of these shows and and movies that we watch actually kind of portray that in this room, it's like a command center, and they're making decisions that affect everyone's timeline. That's true of the current series, Loki, on Disney. It's not just that. It's a lot of shows like that. Now, that's fiction. But in that fiction, sometimes we learn something about our true identity Like in fairy tales, when we're a pauper in this life, but we actually discover through that story that we might actually be a prince or princess. Revelation takes us in a similar dimension. The code and symbolism starts to make sense because it's a story that's meant for us to work at it and expand our imagination into more elevated considerations. We can see the quantum, multiversal dimension of the massive event that was the salvation through the cross. Or we could just take it for granted. But might it be true that when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, that that, those words ring out in different dimensions and go out to the farthest reaches of the universe of all time and space and of utmost importance 
In conclusion, at the table of our Lord, we are reminded of the greater reality of God. It's a portal into the eternal dimension. As we remember God's grace through Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, we are reminded that truly, we can never outgive God. A valuable sum has already changed hands. And it was the ransom that was paid with the life of our Lord. A ransom to free us from sin and free us for a close communion with our Creator that would never end, where we would serve and reign together with the Lord of all. Friends, our Lord is worthy, deserving of our praise, deserving of the offering of our time, of our talent, and our treasure. Is He worthy? He is.